0: God's word to Matthew 7, reading verses 15 to 23, and then also Luke 6, 43 to 45, where there's a parallel to Matthew's gospel. We welcome those visiting with us. We are going through the gospel of Matthew, coming near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Hear now the word of God. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Luke chapter 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So far, the reading of God's holy word May he bless it to our hearts today by his Holy Spirit. Do you want to change? Are you frustrated with indwelling sin in your life? Do you cry out like Paul in Romans 7? The good I want to do I don't do, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Is there hope for us? Well, thanks be to God because of the gospel, there is hope. In his death, Jesus has dealt with the guilt of our sin. This is an aspect of justification that there is a one time forensic legal declaration that we sinners are declared righteous by a holy God for the sake of Christ and his righteousness imputed to us, received by faith alone. That's good news. And the same Christ, by faith in him we are justified. We are being sanctified. Christ is the sanctified one. Who, by means of his sinless obedience, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, is consecrated in the place of his people. Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, and what does Paul say? Our sanctification, our redemption. The entirety of the scriptures is about change. God is making those things that are wrong and sinful and broken and dark right and pure and holy and good and new. Redemption, repentance, reconciliation, the coming of the kingdom. These are biblical phrases that explain God is changing things. Today we want to look at what Matthew 7 and Luke 6 teach us about bad fruit and good fruit, change and holiness. And we'll be summarizing in some ways what the adult Sunday school class has been going through. David Pollison's work, Dynamics of Biblical Change. So you'll see on your outline a number of questions that he asks. We're not going to go through all that definitively, but this is like a recap for those in Sunday school. This is where we are today. And for those who haven't been in Sunday school, an introduction to what I think he's helpfully teaching us. First, how can I change the bad fruit in our hearts? Kids, you see the illustration. You have an apple tree, and it's planted, and in the spring there's flowers. In the fall, what do you expect on that tree? Apples. In the ancient Mediterranean world, Figs and grapes and olives were the main produce. And you would expect that figs would come from a fig tree. Negatively, if you have a thorn bush up in your garden and it has little berries that look perhaps intriguing from a distance, you get up close and you see those berries are not edible. And those thorns hurt. Thorn bushes bear thorns. That's what both Matthew and Luke are teaching. And the point is, our heart is like a tree. Our heart, not meaning the organ here that's pumping, but as Mike Emlett says, the disposition of a person that's either in covenant disobedience or covenant obedience before God. All of us are born dead in Adam, disobedient, broken and dead in sin. But in Christ, the last Adam, he is our righteousness and now our hearts are changed. So you read throughout the scriptures about the heart. Luke 6, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Psalm 19, the meditations of our hearts. Referring to the covenantal aspect of our spirit and our soul and our mind and our inner nature. In the Bible the heart thinks and it remembers. It feels, experiences It chooses and acts. It's the seat of our spiritual, moral life, reminding us that at our core, every human is a worshiper, either of God, the triune God, or of created things. The body carries out the heart's desires. So for us to change, we need our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. Here's some examples. One man writes this book. These are three examples, not of anyone that I'm talking to here. I just want you to know this is from a book, but I hope it'll help. Dan is a young man in his early 20s. He's been fighting the temptation of pornography and self-gratification since he was a teenager. He sometimes goes days or weeks without giving in to lust. When he fails, he confesses his sin to God, but the feelings of defeat and hopelessness linger In Dan for days. Sally is a middle aged stay at home mom. She started drinking heavily when her kids grew up and left the home. She's never been able to go more than a month without going on a binge. Bob and Mary have been married for over 10 years. The Lord has blessed them with a 10 year old and an 8 year old. They don't fight, but there's no intimacy in their marriage. They recognize they're not being wise in raising their kids. There's just a blahness to life. Vic has an explosive temper. It has cost him relationships with friends, family, and at work. And each one of these people says, I want to change, but I feel helpless. I feel stuck. Is there hope? And as David Pollison says, Yes, there is. Our Redeemer rights all wrongs. That's what these questions are designed for. They're written on our outline on pages 5 and 6 for us to self-reflect. They've been incredibly helpful in my life. What are you facing? What influences are affecting you? Right now, what hardships and what joys are you dealing with? What should you be like? What's going wrong in your world? What's becoming bent and darkened and disoriented? That's what sin is. It's fundamentally disorientation. What's disordered? What are we focused in on ourselves too much on? Why do you act and think, feel and react, remember and talk, fantasize and choose the way you do. What makes wrongs right? Who will help? How do we change? What does change look like? How should we live? And how can we help others? These are massive questions. First, on page five, he says, the heat. So what stressors are you facing at work and at home? Where are your responsibilities? Who are the difficult people in your life? Who has given you bad counsel that has led to perhaps more heat? Who has sinned against you? Who have you sinned against and caused heat to enter their life? Where do you feel overwhelmed or misunderstood? Where do we try to control our life? Where do we think we can manage our way out of the problem? The heat, we all face it. Afflictions, sufferings, trials are heat as well. Then he goes on and says, how are you reacting to the heat? Here's the image coming right out of Luke. Thorns come from a heart, the condition of the heart, that is sinful. So where are your buttons, he asks. Why did you think and react the way you did? Where are the hidden faults? And the secret sins that we're covering? Where are the presumptuous sins that we're just boldly committing? When the heat comes, our thorns manifest themselves sometimes in exaggeration, thinking it's worse than it is. Other times, thorns out of the heart minimize. No big deal. I'm good. Maybe we try to escape the heat. By looking for refuge in a chaotic world, life is stressful, so we escape. We try to numb the pain. We take pleasures and gifts of God and we turn them into idols. Paulison asked these questions. Do you see how these are heart searching questions? Because they apply to all of us in all of our different circumstances today. How do you know when a pleasure has crossed the line from innocent to guilty? Well, the pleasure is plain wrong. That's one way. The pleasure captivates and captures us. The pleasure is hidden. We don't want anyone else to know. Not our spouse, not anyone. The pleasure steals us away from the good. The pleasure doesn't deliver. Our thorns can be seen in trying to use people. Fear of man, which replaces fear of God. Becoming hypersensitive. Why is everyone out to get me? Vengeance. Anger. Bitterness. Self-pity. What's wrong with everyone else? Our thorns are complaining and laziness. Gossip and lust. Avoidance and indifference. Swearing rants. Judgmental spirits. Lack of self-control. Unbelief. The words that come out of our mouth, those are thorny. Luke says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the tongue is like the sound system of our body. Whatever is in our soul gets amplified and put into words. Who have we spoken rudely to? Who have we just kind of coldly avoided? Where have we blamed others? We tempt, we're tempted to do that, to blame people. Well, do you see what they said? Do you, do you remember what they did? But our word problems, Luke says, are heart problems. The people around us don't make us say what we say, they are the occasion for our heart to reveal what's in there. Sin is a condition that expresses itself in actions and words. What's ruling our heart? What are the consequences that come from this sinful heart? How are people affected in my life because of my thorns? My spouse, my kids, those at work, those at church. How is my health affected? Sin is self-destructive. Sin is against a holy God. Bad fruit. That's the big picture of thorns. Now, secondly, we zero in to see what this looks like. In the church. Both Matthew and Luke are talking about this image. And Matthew now takes the fruit and thorns and he applies it to false teachers. Matthew 7:14. He says, False prophets, false teachers, those who claim to speak for God and claim to teach the word of God, they're gonna come. They troubled Israel. They were there in the days of Jeremiah. They were saying, peace, peace but there was no peace. They were lying in the days of Ezekiel, spreading falsehoods. They came to the Jerusalem council trying to deny the gospel. They were there in Galatia teaching that you have to add to the work of Christ to be saved. Diotrephes was there, who loves the preeminence in 3 John. They're going to come dressed up. They're not going to shout, Hello, I'm a false prophet, I'm a wolf, look at me. They're going to be dressed like sheep. They'll have the appearance of spirituality, the qualities of good leadership. Ephesus, Paul says, from within these wolves will arise, from within the church here. And they will teach distorted things and they're going to try to get people to follow them. In the book of Revelation, there's a false trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The false prophet, Singular Ferguson reminds us, has two horns, Revelation 13, 11, like a lamb. That's the Antichrist. Pretending not to be what he is, pretending to be what he is not. They're ravenous. That means kids, like your dog, When you drop a piece of hamburger, that dog is so fast to grab that meat. That's what these wolves are. They're wanting to devour, to destroy. A sheep will never do that. A sheep may butt its head, may muddy the water, and sheep bite. And it hurts. But a sheep won't destroy. A wolf is after the people of God. Not to give the people Christ, the bread of life, but to eat the people. The wolf is a deceiver. The wolf might be self deceived. The wolf might not think the wolf is a wolf, but the wolf is a wolf. Sincerity without truth is still wrong. The heart is deceptive and wicked. Beware, Jesus says. Don't be surprised. Don't be naive. Don't slumber. Don't fall asleep. Now, we know the rest of Matthew 7. Jesus reminds us don't be hypercritical. Don't go on a heresy hunt. But be discerning. Whoever preaches here, whether it's me or another man or the elders or the deacons as they lead you and love you and your own family, ask what am I hearing? Is this according to Scripture? Open our Bibles. Ask me questions if you're wondering. What did that mean or where did that come from? Test the word of God with the word of God. The teaching, the preaching, with the scriptures. The things we listen to online. The YouTubes and the podcasts and the accessibility to good material is wonderful, but be discerning in what you take in. So what do you look for, Jesus says? Well... False teachers are like thorn bushes. Here's the image. Those berries from a distance that might look good, you get up close, that's poison. You've got to examine closely the teacher. Not his eloquence, not his giftedness, but his life. Open the hood. When you get up close, what kind of person is this? We're all sinners, and as Christians, saved by grace alone, don't expect perfection. But is there humility? Is there the fruit of the Spirit? Is there repentance? And it takes time. Fruit grows over time. False teachers are all about themselves. Their name, their popularity, their books, their churches, their self. They use Christ to get religion. And so Ferguson says, never confuse someone's gifts with the presence of God's grace in their life. Never balance the lack of God's grace to them, he says, with the exercise of their gifts. So important. Someone will say, well, look at all I'm doing. Look at all the people that I've affected. Look at my influence. You better not question me. That's the stuff Jesus is talking about. No matter how gifted the false teacher is, he's a worker of lawlessness. He may be an antinomian, he may be a legalist. Legalists are lawless because they're not holding to Christ's law, but they're adding to it. They're holding others by it. And the most strict legalist who looks outwardly a certain way, inwardly, is lawless in the heart. Calvin, nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. If it's not there, it will show itself sooner or later. How do you know? Test them by their fruit, Jesus says. What about the content of their teaching? The context here is the Sermon on the Mount. So is what this teacher says in line line with what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God? A wolf cannot sound like a sheep, Ferguson says, because what comes out of his mouth will give him away. So what does he say? How does he say it? And what doesn't he say? He doesn't preach the whole counsel of God. He may reject the law or the gospel or distort them. He may muddle justification and sanctification. He may Deny the Trinity and the person of Christ, the work of Christ. He may talk of grace, grace, and never call anyone to holiness and obedience. He may say, You are saved by your obedience plus your faith. It could be a number of different areas. It may be in relation to the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of the Bible. He may never say anything offensive. Hell doesn't exist. Judgment, righteousness, no way. The way of Christ is easy, he'll say. He may not talk at all of suffering, but of fulfilling your potential. He may not say, as Jesus says, love your enemies. Because a legalistic driven life always asks, how can I restrict who I love to the people I want to love? Where's their fruit? Third, how is the fruit seen in the result of their teaching? So what's this guy like? What's his teaching like? And what's the result of it? Because there'll be a correlation between all of those things. Who he is, what he teaches, and the impact it makes on people. Does he point you to Christ? Do you find grace in the gospel and love for Christ in your heart by the Spirit, as a result of what he teaches? Does he upset the faith? Does he cause ungodly divisions in the body of Christ? Does he promote bitterness, divisiveness, ungodliness? And if so, is it spreading like cancer? Does he intimidate? Are you afraid of him? With everyone we read or listen to, we need to ask, where will this teaching take me if I continue to take it in? Ferguson, again, he's wise, he's older, and he has a lot to add. If you sit under a ministry where there is more sin than grace, talked about, more law than Christ, more command, sanctification by scolding, try harder, legalism, antinomianism, rather than the gospel. That is a false ministry, Ferguson says. What does a faithful ministry look like? Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself, your life, your hearers. We should see fruit. There should be a connection between the teaching, the gospel, and the life of God's people. Truth and love, law and gospel, patience and grace. When you hear a teacher who is faithful, you'll know I'm taking this in because I know this man loves me. He loves Jesus and he wants together to see us grow in grace. Beware of false prophets. Beware that we don't deceive ourselves, Jesus says. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus warns us here of those who say, Lord, Lord, and have no love for Christ in their hearts like talkative in Pilgrim's Progress. He joined with Pilgrim and Faithful, and he was all talk. Talk, talk, talk. He talked about prayer, talked about faith, talked about Christ, talked about repentance, but it was just words, and that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, profess your faith. Yes, publicly proclaim Christ as my Savior, Romans 10. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. But the warning here is, there are those who will say that and not believe it. The number of those who enter the kingdom is smaller than the number who claim to serve the king. Remember Judas? Said the right things. Performed miracles, cast out demons, along what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7. But he didn't know Christ. There was no personal saving relationship that he had with the Lord. Jesus is saying, depart from me, you who just say it without loving me, without a change in your life, you say, Lord, Lord, but I'm not your Lord. I will say I never knew you. A warning to all of us, to teachers, to missionaries, to church leaders, that we're not saved by what we do. It's not, okay, I was baptized, I took the Lord's Supper, I did this. We're saved by what Christ has done. By grace through faith in him. And it makes an impact in how we live. Not perfectly. Jesus says, I never knew you. Dear Christian, these false prophets are bad fruit and their trees are thrown into the fire. Hell is real. Judgment is real. But the promise of the gospel says Jesus wants to know you. Bring your sins to him, your struggles, your sadness, your confusion. Pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, change me. God, search me. God, make me more like Christ that I would bear third fruit that pleases you. The first Adam was to produce fruits of righteousness from his heart. He broke the covenant with God plunging all of us into sin. Israel, the nation, was to be a vineyard, producing grapes, but instead, briars and thorns grew up. This image of fruit and thorns is throughout the Bible. Isaiah 11, 700 years before the coming of Christ, says there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, from the line ultimately of David, And a branch from his roots will bear what? Fruit. What is the gospel? God the Son became incarnate, was born of a virgin, suffered and obeyed the law on our behalf. Jesus is the man of Psalm 1 who is planted by streams of water, who always produced good fruit. This Son of God, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus was crucified in our place. He bore the curse of sin we deserve. He took the hell and judgment that I deserve. My heart, my evil, my sin, my thorns. He bore it. He drank it to its depths. Justice demands sinners pay the debt to the last penny. We could never repay it. Finite sinners cannot atone for the guilt of sinning against an infinite God. That's why a person who dies in their sins will spend eternity paying their debt. A sin against an infinite, eternal God requires a penalty of eternal duration, infinite punishment. That's what Christ bore for you, loved ones. The last Adam, the perfect Israel, He triumphed over sin and death and Satan, dying in our place for our sin, rising on the third day. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. He's interceding for you now. What is the gospel? He's coming again. He will conquer his enemies. He will bring you to final redemption and salvation. That's good news. The man with good fruit took my thorns and bad fruit and bore it in my place and gave me his fruit and righteousness. Free acceptance with God on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, received by faith, resting faith, receiving faith, not faithfulness or fidelity. Christ's obedience is the meritorious ground on which eternal life is earned for you. Heaven was earned for you, Christian. He takes my sin and debt. He gives me his obedience and merit. He makes a proper satisfaction to God's justice for me. Divine justice is the foundation of the gospel. All the kingdom blessings are granted to us through him as a matter of justice. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse you. From all unrighteousness, he gave you a new heart by his Spirit. Praise be to God. And now, as the Spirit produces fruit in us, we begin to look more like Christ. Fruitfulness is Christ likeness, it's the exact opposite of the false prophets and teachers. It takes time to grow. But you sit here and say where would I be today apart from the grace of God? And you think this is where God has brought me praise be to him. I'm not yet what I will one day be. I want to be more like Christ but by God's grace I'm not what I once was. God is gracious. So we ask how is God relevant? Question number five of Paulison. If we skip The gospel, which we've just talked about. When we're struggling, when heat comes, when thorns that are still present in our hearts begin to poke out, if we skip the gospel, we will be full of despair on the one hand, or pride in our performance on the other. But by the gospel, through the Spirit, our thorns become fruit. We keep our eye on Jesus There has been an uprooting. There's a new tree. Jesus died that you'd bear fruit. As we grow in Christ, we commune with the living God. Knowing God better makes for change in our lives, Michael Reif says. Knowing the love of God makes us loving. That God is so committed to you, to forgiving you, to changing you. He loves you so much, he sent Jesus to die for you. He's patient with you. He will discipline you as a proof of his love. And his love leads us by the Spirit to trust him, to love him, to worship him. The root has been changed when we trust in Christ. The grace and power of Jesus changes both root and fruit. So, how do you respond in Christ to the heat? Where's the connection between what we say we believe, the heart motivation, and how we live? Not perfect yet. But Jesus says the difference between saying Lord and meaning it is the difference between salvation and damnation. Damnation. Not just saying words, but God, help me love you. Help me worship you. Give me your spirit today. Where there's repentance, not perfect repentance, we need to repent of our repentance, that's a sign that God's at work. What are some examples? Disappointing relationships. All of us have failed and disappointed people. Maybe someone sitting next to you. Maybe someone as a friend that you don't talk to anymore. Maybe someone in this church. When we disappoint others, a growing security in God brings more boldness to our relationships. When someone is rightly disappointed with me, where I've sinned against them, where I've missed things, where I've been slack or lazy, go toward them, not away. Where we wrong them, ask for forgiveness. Say, I disappointed you. I hate that. I want to understand your concern, Ed Welch says. I want to hear the concern. Take it seriously. Your relationship with mine and me, it's important enough that I, I want to go to you, not distance myself. When you rest in God, you still feel the pain of rejection, the pain of being a disappointment. But you're stronger. You're not devastated because Christ, the gospel, is your security and foundation. That's a picture of thorns to fruit relationships. How about parenting? Thorns to fruit. There can be a pride in parenting. Follow the right formula, your kids turn out great. Thorns to fruit says, I can't change my my kid. I trust in the Lord. I pray I want to be faithful in raising them in the love of the Lord. But only God can change their heart. Here's a prayer, thorn to fruit. A mom prayed for her son. God, do whatever it takes to save our son. Thorns to fruit. Thorns to fruit in secret sin. Behind David's adultery and murder was an internal problem. A heart problem. He lusted. He desired something God had not given him. Much deeper than the outward symptom. The law couldn't provide for him. But God does. In Christ. God says bring to me your sin. Your presumptuous sin. Your secret sin. Christ will cleanse you. He'll make you new. He'll make you more like him. Torrance to fruit and growing old. Ferguson says, one of the most fundamental differences between a Christian and non-Christian is that the Christian learns to think from the future into the present. You see this when you visit elderly people. A non-Christian person who's growing old has nothing to look forward to. They're all about memories from the past, and that's it. But Christian elderly people have everything to look forward to, and so do you, whether you're young or old. Because... The Christian elderly person has been living the whole of their life in the future of the hope we have in Christ, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. One day we will sin no more. One day we will be sinned against no more. One day there will be no more thorns. We will see Jesus as he is. Until that day, God is changing us. As John Newton said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen. Loved ones, why do we want to change? The goal is worship.